Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things that we should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how we basically spent all of last week watching the Democratic National Convention. Oh my goodness. They should always do the roll call that way. Yeah, that was, like, everyone I've seen is like, yeah, the roll call was so much better this way. It wasn't just... Screaming. Screaming. <laughs> and I, I also say this, you know what? I like the speeches better. Someone was complaining like, well, you know, Joe Biden's speech was shorter than every other one. It's like, yeah, because there wasn't 17 minutes of applause. Yeah. And all he had to say, like literally all he's required to say is I accept the nomination. So the fact that he said anything else is just a bonus. But like, I loved seeing like American Samoa and people getting to show their cultures and Rhode Island getting to show its calamari. It, it's I love all of the states. It's like, what are we going to do? Well, obviously we're going to promote something because we got to bring in the tourists. Yes. Or sell something. Or sell something. And But I will say the calamari thing worked. I have been wanting calamari ever since. I have too. And we can only get it in Rhode Island. We ha- Road trip? Road trip to Rhode Island just for calamari. Road trip to Rhode Island for calamari. You know, I've been to Rhode Island once, and we did not have calamari. Is Rhode Island actually an island? You're pretty. I am pretty. But one thing that the convention made me realize is that I want to vote for Dr. Jill Biden. Oh. And I also, like, just just how much I miss Obama. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Both of them. Austin and I... Are the type of millennials who are, have the bad habit of always looking at our phones. We really are. You, like half the time during convention and stuff, it's me Googling who's on the screen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But Obama came on screen, the phones went down, and we just watched. And then our cat Zumbi came over, and Zumbi's nuts. Zumbi like looks to run and play, and the only thing that can ever to stop is either being asleep or if she sees a bird. Every time Obama's on the screen, not just during the convention, every time Zumbi stops and watches him. Yeah. Our cat loves Obama. There is something about Barack Obama that just speaks to her little kitten heart. (laughs) President Obama, if you're ever like in Kansas City and like we're out of town, like we will hire you to cat sit. Mm -hmm, I'm sure that's what you need. It is a huge honor. We don't let just anybody watch our cats. (laughs) That's very true. We are very picky. In fact, we only have one other cat sitter, but I think even she'd be okay if we chose the Obamas. I, she'd be a little jealous. Well, but... I think that maybe they'd have to like tag team it because Barack's probably pretty busy. Yeah. So I guess our current cat sitter, you are just our alternate to Barack Obama because he's too busy. <laughs> I don't know though. Can we trust the Obamas with our Wi-Fi password like we can her? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can trust Barack and Michelle. I am, I'm not sold on that Sasha yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think the moment I was sold on Barack was when Sasha, during one of his speeches, he was on the big video screen and the family was there, just stopped something. hi, daddy, hi, daddy, hi, hi, hi. And he stopped after a few seconds because Michelle's trying to get her to like chill. <laughs> and he goes, hi, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was like between that and the fact that he put his campaign on pause when his grandma died. I'm like, whoa, it's a human being. Yeah. I'm all about voting for a human being. And I will say, Austin and I, every time they said Kamala Harris's name, we just said Kamala, Kamala, because we are the ones who have been mispronouncing it. Yes. And every person deserves to have their name pronounced correctly. It's, I, I had mostly only ever read it. (laughs) Yeah, we'd only ever read it. Like when she was on camera, it was always Senator Harris. Mm Mm-hmm. So we hadn't ever actually really heard Kamala, or if we had, it just kind of we'd he- Or we'd over. heard it mispronounced by pundits. Yes. So Kamala. Kamala. And Austin and I have differing opinions on her. 
But at the end of the day, it doesn't outweigh anything else for me. And I just hope that they pick a really good secretary of education. Yes. And Jill Biden, Jill Biden will have a say in this. I really believe that. I like to throw my name in the, in the ring for that one. Uh, just, if you know the Bidens, say it's like, hey, I know this guy with a podcast. He researches things mediocrily. Mediocrily? Mediocrily. Okay, you do not want Austin as your secretary of education. Me, on the other hand, I'll get shit done and I will take care of your student loans because I have a plan. Um, I'm replacing all buses with surfboards. It'll be tubular. All school buses? Yes. How will that work since they're not on the water? They'll just have to hang Ted. <sighs> so um, I guess tweet at tweet at us. See tell, who has the better vision for America's schools: actual education or surfboards? <laughs> Guys, I really do have a plan. <laughs> Like, if I got a call from the Bidens and they were like, Maddie, come be Secretary of Education. First, I'd say, have you heard how much I cuss on my podcast? Followed by, yeah, I'll do that. So, because I have a plan. I can save your student loans and get the money back to the government because that's what's important to them. And I've worked in suburban and urban and rural schools and private schools. And I've taught all those places. I've attended all those places. I know what's up. I know what, I know what the problems are. And I have some ideas. Unlike our current Betsy DeVos, who has probably driven by a school at some point. Well, be been driven by a been school. Been driven by a school. I, I, will, I will say this with, like, you know, zero doubt in my mind. My surfboard plan is better than anything she has thought of. Me or Betsy? Betsy. Mm, yes, that is accurate. That is very accurate. I mean, I still think my surfboard plan is the best plan that's ever happened. I would vote for Gilderoy Lockhart over Betsy DeVos. But he's got that mem- But his brain be gone. Yes, which yeah. makes him the safer choice. Yes, it because does. unfortunately, Betsy DeVos is thinking clearly, and this is what's coming out. Ugh, ugh, she's the worst. But yeah, that's been our week. Is pretty much the Democratic National Convention and me sobbing as they went through the roll call. From the moment Arizona showed up and they had a teacher, I was like, I'm done. Despite its little hurdles and foibles of like the production problems i still think it's one of the better conventions we've ever had that was great like i don't mind them bringing back a crowd but they always need to do the roll call that way just to say it's like look this is america these are the people that we're representing Mm -hmm. not these randos who are just screaming numbers at us and while we're while we're at it um kansas like this is what happens when you cut your arts you like get the guy in like the top two-thirds of the frame the audio's bad and there's like no script and he just talks about rural america then some numbers yes and it is important because a lot of people actually do think kansas is a rural state and we do have a large percentage of us that is rural but even in those rural areas there are towns there are cities we like we have a flourishing suburban and even a little bit of an urban area like yeah you know, I know people who've gone to different parts of the world are like, oh, do you have electricity? It's like, last week, got it installed. Last week, got it installed. I, could, I couldn't live at home no more What? because they tore down the outhouse for that plumbing. Yeah, we like we have plumbing. We have paved roads. We have internet. Yeah. So there are some problems in Western Kansas. People aren't able to get their censuses done because the internet is so spotty there. And that's pretty much the only option people yeah. are being given this year. And then on top of that, a lot of them are using P.O. boxes and not home addresses. And P.O. boxes can't apparently have censuses sent to them. Huh. So, yeah. Also, though, if you're not done with your census, figure it out. Get it done. Yeah, do that shit. That's it's how important. you get funding. It's very important. 
Yeah, and if you have not yet figured out a vote, Google. Yeah. You're like, again. <laughs> we can help you. We'll, we'll happily help but, help, but if you just type, like, voting in Georgia, everything you need will come up. They have it, like, set up for that. Yeah. So, yeah, and we have, what, something like 70 days left now? It is a lot longer and a lot shorter than you think it is. Yeah, and you have to register well before. and Yeah. Like, that was the other thing, is at the end of it, I was like... We're in it now. This is this is the home stretch. So brace yourselves, people. It's going to be a bumpy it's gonna ride. It's going to be messy. So who goes first this? Week? I get to go first this week. And since we've been talking about like light topics and everything, I decided I was going to just stomp on that. Oh, good. And talk about Hiroshima. Okay. So what we what I remember learning about it in school was that we that World War II ended when we dropped bombs on Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and. A bunch of civilians died, and there was radiation, and then the war ended. Yeah, and we never really talked about the, like, civilians were numbers, not people in the conversation. And we it was kind of like, we were steered away from the idea that some of them were children and things like yes. that. And so this year, because I enjoy baseball and the Royals. He literally a, put on his, what team is it? Uh, the Hiroshima Toyo Carp. Yeah, that's literally in real life the team he supports, and he put it on just for this podcast because yeah. it's such a visual medium. It is. It's like I'm wearing this hat, and so I started. I started rooting for the the carp because. Are you ready for my big scientific list of sports reasonings and like stats and reasons why? Yes, I liked their name, and they had a cool mascot, so I picked them. <laughs> And then in in hindsight, it's like, oh, they play on real get grass and they're a small market team like my beloved Kansas City Royals. But no, in, in reality, it's like, I like the I like their logo. It's a cool logo. Born and raised Red Sox fan. Nobody's perfect. I am. You are. So and I'm going to call out Maddie here. Okay. Because when it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, I think I'm going to root for Hiroshima. She says, wait, people can live there? I mean, no, I, I don't think I said people can live there. I think it was like, how safe is it to live there? And we, I was also wrong because I thought it's like, yeah, it's mostly safe. There's just some like places where people don't live. I was very wrong. It is actually a thriving city and has been for decades. It has a population of 1.2 million people. It's about the size of Dallas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, the background radiation there is less than that of an international flight. What about Nagasaki? I didn't I didn't look into Nagasaki. I we, why is Nagasaki always forgotten in history classes? Uh, because it was the second one and uh, more people realized this might have been serious and got out of there and less people died. So, you know, it was second. So we don't worry about it as much. <laughs> kind of like us trying to remember who different pol- political candidates ran against when uh, we realized that nobody remembers the second place. Nobody remembers second place. Oh, that was dark. So, and I thought we should talk about the aftermath and the recovery after the bombing. And it's interesting and really worth talking about because there's so much gray area and like dealing with the aftermath of a brutal world war and, you know, the people that America fought against. And it was kind of hard for us to feel sympathy for them. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to talk about this. So buckle up. (laughs) During World War II, Hiroshima was a big military supply depot, and it was, like, central for shipping throughout the area. And it also had been more or less untouched by conventional bombing up to this point. Mm-hmm. It was prepared for bombing, but it hadn't really been bombed. So that's why it was selected as the first target for the atomic bomb. Because it, as much as it was a you know, attempt to end this war quickly, it was still also a scientific experiment to see the full effects of this new weapon. Now, here is an important question. Should the U.S. have bombed Hiroshima? Should they have even dropped the bombs at all? Are you actually asking me? I'm asking you. Or it's also kind of rhetorical. I have come to discover that I am in the minority with my answer of no. 
Me too. And so the U.S. justification for it was that uh, this dropping this bomb would end the war quickly and it would save American lives because we wouldn't have to invade Japan. And also the thought was it would save more civilian lives than were lost in the bombing. This was not completely without merit because Mm -hmm. the Japanese army was uh, training people to fight with bamboo spears and to basically run at tanks carrying satchels of explosives and try like and blow them up. Regular civilians? Regular civilians. That's women very and children. Sad. That's very sad. Uh, the army was ready to accept 28 million civilian casualties, according to some documents that were recovered after the war. The American Secretary of War called it the least aberrant choice. But this is the missing point. Militarily, Japan was spent. There was not going to be any real resistance if there was an actual invasion, they thought that maybe the sur- surrender would actually come. It's you know, There's lots of bickering and hemming and hawing about whether we actually needed to or if we could have ended it quickly, either with negotiations or just in other ways without having to kill all these civilians. Yeah, and it's not just killing the civilians. It's destroying the environment to a level that we had not previously tested. Yeah, we... Like, it, this is an atomic bomb, not just a bomb. We don't know what this is going to do to... Mm-hmm. And granted, I don't even know if we knew what the ozone was at that point, but... Yeah, yeah. Also, there was... um Again, they were talking about this was a scientific experiment, and the second bomb was also part of that scientific experiment because it was built in a different way, and they wanted to see which one worked better. Gross. Yeah. Uh, there was also some speculation that... It was also to intimidate the USSR at the end of World War II so they wouldn't continue to be, you know, as they were. Um, we can see how well that worked. But with the Cold <laughs> War. Yeah. So on Monday, August 6th, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., a bomb was dropped out of a B-29 bomber, the Enolge, and it detonated 600 meters above the Shima Hospital. Were they actually aiming for a hospital? No, they are just aiming for the city. This okay. was a... I mean, that's not better, but... Basically, this was a very high atmosphere. It dropped as high as it could and turned around and flew away as fast as it could to escape right. the blast. Right. So this was just a general, like, we're in the right area. Mm-hmm. Also, the guy who flew this, flew this plane, I, I think it kind of broke him a little bit. Mm-hmm. He talk, he would talk about frequently about how he didn't lose any sleep over this. He just did his job correctly, and it was the right thing to do. But also, he um, would re, he'd gotten like some scandal for reenacting the bombing with a fake mushroom cloud at uh-huh. a Texas air show. And when they had an exhibit about this at the, the Smithsonian, he was vocal against it because it it he thought it focused too much on the Japanese civilian lives. It might not have broken him. He might have just been racist. It's, there's a good deal of that happening at this time period. It's like I, re- I remember reading another interview, and I don't think it was the same guy. It was just a guy who was on one of the planes, and they asked him too, do you regret it? And he's like, nope, the war wouldn't have ended otherwise. Because yeah. they really do, like, they, you follow orders, and I mm-hmm. understand that. And also, they told you this. And, I mean, yeah. honestly, how else are you going to live afterwards if you realize anything different? Yeah. He also, um, he didn't want a grave marker when he when he died because he thought it would be a target for people who were opposed to war. So he was just cremated and his ashes were spread. The idea that anybody wouldn't be opposed to war on a theoretical level is bizarre. Like, mm-hmm. there are individual wars that are necessary, but the idea of war overall, everybody should be against that. Yeah. It should be like, hey guys, let's negotiate things. Let's not kill a bunch of people. In the first moments of the explosion, about 80,000 people died. The lucky ones. Almost instantly. The lucky ones. Less than 10% of them were mil- 
members of the military. Uh-huh. And thousands were slaves taken from China and Korea. Oh, Jesus. It is unclear if Truman and the army knew that there were that there was slave labor being used and that they would be at this site. We don't know if they actually even knew that mm-hmm. when they decided to do this, but they were there. Well, and I don't think it would have stopped them. It might not have. Because, like, weren't we, like, who were we fighting? Like, who who were we against in Asia during this one? Japan. Just Japan? Just just Japan. Was China neutral or were they Oh, us? no. J- uh, Japan had conquered big chunks of China. So we were kind of fighting China at this point? No, China was on our side, kind of. It's... Yeah, the uh, politics of all of this is so complicated. Yeah, um, like in history class, they make it be like, there are these clear dividing lines. And yeah, China was weird because there was Japan was fighting China, but China was in like two basically different sides. There was the Chinese communists led by Mao and the Chinese nationalists read, read by Chiang Kai-shek. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it's a mess. It's, it's an entire series of podcasts about yeah. this. But we're going to, we won't go to it. So 90% of the city's buildings were destroyed outright. Uh-huh. Uh, again, it's, and uh, over the next year, 90 to 160,000 more would die from radiation poisoning and other injuries directly related to the bomb. Mm-hmm. So this was a big problem. Like, people were dying of thirst initially. There were, the river was choked with bodies of people trying to get to the river just to drink. Everything was on fire. The city was gone. I actually, in high school, did, I was on the forensics team. I know that's shocking to everybody. And I did a poetry piece. I think it was called The White Blouse. And it was from the point of view of a Hiroshima survivor. Um, Oh, and fun fact, there were Americans who lived there too. And other white people and people from other parts of the world. And it was about the bomb happened and trying to go to the river. And all they could really think about was my shirt is dirty. Because you know how your brain sometimes just freezes. And they get to the river and they take off their shirt and put it in the water and it dissolves. And I'll tell you that one won me sometimes. But I did have one person say, there were only Japanese people there. Why aren't you doing a Japanese accent? I'm like reading this note from a judge going, wow, (laughs) because I'm white. (laughs) Yeah, it's don't. Don't do accents. Like, just just don't. (laughs) I mean, I do accents all the time, but I'm not going to walk around doing racist accents. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a big difference between, like, my bad French accent and doing a Japanese accent for a piece like that. Mm -hmm. And is Hiroshima the one that had, like, the permanent shadows of people? Kind of. Yes, it did. But um, the ones that exist now are actually just installation art pieces that are just part of the memorial. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, this was huge. Uh, survivors would talk about how they couldn't believe that a single bomb had destroyed the city. It was like almost like they were going about, they were helping people, they were doing things, dealing with the dying, and it was just shock. Like no one could believe this had happened. It was mm-hmm. everything turned upside down in an instant. Mm-hmm. And it was just hard to comprehend. Yeah, we see that all the time with like natural disasters. People are like, My, everything's gone. I didn't expect everything to be gone. I mean, they warned us of what this could be, but it, it's not. It, it's not like TV. So the reconstruction actually began literally immediately. Yep. The railway station had power within a day. Good on them. They know what's uh, up. They, yeah, because they knew they were going to need it to be able to get help and supplies for the destroyed city from all the other pre- er, uh, t- cities within the prefect- prefecture. Prefecture? Prefecture. Ah, uh, I don't in, know. In I the actually, area. Okay. I'm like, I don't know what word you're trying to yeah. say. I don't know that word. Uh, yeah. They, uh, yeah. They got power back to a majority of the city pretty quickly. Well, of the buildings that were still standing. Yeah. And they actually had the water pumps repaired and working within four days. But the water probably wasn't safe. They just didn't oh. know that fully. And there were still burst pipes and damage pipes everywhere and it was creating big puddles. But they were able to get drinkable water to people. So these guys are amazing is what you're telling me. Yeah. They even... 
even though everybody in like the phone company died immediately, the equipment was still largely intact. So they were able to get people in and work on getting phone lines back up and like getting communication going again, like quickly after this, even though everyone had died. They even had limited public transportation three days after this. Wow. There were hospital tents everywhere. Um, the Higashi police station, which even though it was well within the, like, just everything was destroyed area, was intact enough that they could use it as the headquarters for the search and rescue and just relief effort. Speaking of tent hospitals, um, of the 16 hospitals in Hiroshima, 14 were destroyed completely. Like, Ugh. not even, like, two bricks left standing together. That's where you go to get better. Of the nearly 300 doctors, only 28 survived the blast. Like, in the whole in the whole city? In the whole city. And they all, like, it's a small city. They they would all know each other, so they all lost people. I mean, everybody yeah, lost everybody people. everybody lost people. Uh, like, and these people go back to work. And there are only about 100 nurses left, too. You know you're in trouble when you only have 100 nurses left. Yeah, the uh, the mayor was dead, so there was no one really leading this. And of the one hundred of the one thousand like civic employees like that worked in that office, only eighty reported to duty the next day. But the fact is, they reported to duty, and that's fucking 80, impressive. Yeah. The fact that eighty people managed to report to duty in this is amazing. It's like there are probably people who lost everything and everybody, and they still saw the value mm-hmm. of I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to save like, other people. Yeah, which is so that's so other cultures yeah. and and Boston. I'll give it to Boston too. Yeah, and of course, you know. The recovery was going along. Then it got worse. Yeah. Because on September 17th, a typhoon hit the city. A unusually strong typhoon, which a typhoon is basically a hurricane. So they got like all of 2020 in the period of a couple weeks. Yeah, within a month. It ruined many of the temporary hospitals and destroyed several of the city's bridges across the river. So things went from already pretty bad to worse. But the only good thing to come out of it was that it washed a lot of the radioactive contamination out to sea. Because (laughs) radiation levels dropped measurably after this typhoon. Yeah, just thinking about all like the radioactive whales there are now. Well, how do you think we got Flipper? (laughs) He is faster than lightning. Yeah. No one, you see. Is smarter than he? Mm-hmm. It's because of the radiation. He lives in a world full of wonder. And magic there under? Under the sea? I don't know the lyrics. <laughs> you can kind of see the TV shows I was raised I don't with. think I've ever seen an episode of Flipper. I saw the movie Flipper with Elijah Wood in the 90s. Oh, I forgot that movie existed. I remember Free Willy, but I, yeah, this I was forgot that same about time Flipper. Frame. Hiroshima actually recovered remarkably quickly despite the near total devastation. It was back to its pre-war population by 1958. So they got busy. They got busy. <laughs> um and for those keeping track at home, they made it up they made it back to their like, you know, previous population. Faster than it's taken New Orleans to get back to pre-Katrina population. Ugh. So, yeah. Which they had a, a hurricane and a bomb. Tulane was contacting me beforehand asking me to apply. And for some reason I was like, I don't think I need to apply to this school. I don't know why. I just I don't feel like that's right. And then they got hit with it what would have been my freshman year. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I think that's the... I think it's my freshman year was what would happen. She's psychic. I mean, I've just kind of accepted it. You guys are going to have to, too, eventually. <laughs> yeah, but of course, even though recovery is going well, there were a lot of long-term problems associated with the fallout. Literal fallout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we may never know the full measure of these effects. No. Partly because the United States government censored any information about the radiation and deaths therefrom for a long time. Kind of like we did with the Spanish flu. Yeah, and ironically, while we were, like, you know, going into Japan and talking about the freedom of democracy and, like, free press while we were occupying them, we were aggressively censoring all of this information. 
we censored newspapers. We silenced uh, outspoken individuals. We did, they did not circulate early medical reports about the radiation poisoning and what was going on and these deaths. And they classified samples, reports, and they had publicity campaigns that were reassuring that were also mostly lies. Propaganda. Propaganda. Yeah, videos, photos, reports, medical samples, all classified. Some of them for decades. Now, the world at large only began to learn about the atomic plague, as they called it, not really understanding you know, the effects of radiation on that scale, months after the fact. So they kept it quiet for a while. Mm-hmm. It was even censored in American newspapers. Oh, yeah. Part of the censorship fell under the military secrets because, you know, they didn't want everyone to know about this weapon. And also part of it was they wanted to reassure the occupying allied troops that there wasn't any real danger, which there was. Uh huh. They also didn't want the bomb to be associated with illness. <laughs> Death is fine, but not illness. Yeah, they didn't want it to be viewed as like a chemical weapon, like the gas used in World War One. They wanted it to be viewed as a conventional combat bomb. You should see the journey my facial expressions are going under during this. Oh yeah, it was clearly, it did not work because all of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s sci-fi was about radiation and Uh big chunk of the 90s and 2000s too. Yeah, and now we also know, you know, Chernobyl happened. I don't remember, I don't know when, but it was after this. And they didn't, you know, hide that so much. And we know it was, you know, the same basic stuff. Same basic stuff. Even years after, people around the blast site continued to get cancers at higher rates, about 10% higher than average. That's lower than I expected. It's much lower than expected and much lower than people assume it is. That typhoon probably helped. The typhoon definitely helped. It's still statistically significantly higher, but it's not like the, oh my gosh, everyone was dying of like cancer and radiation around this area. And it was everyone. It wasn't. Yes. Any percentage is bad. Yeah. But 10% is lower than I expected. There is one really famous case from this of a person with cancer. It was uh, Sadako Sasaki. Uh, You may have read this book as a kid. It was uh, Sasako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. Yep. Yeah, that was, it's a book more or less about how she has leukemia and she's in the hospital and there is a, a folklore myth that if you fold 1,000 paper cranes, you can grant a, wit, a wish is granted. So she was going around like scrounging whatever paper she could get to fold these cranes. And then her classmates and people started bringing papers so she could fold the cranes. And she died before she could fold all of them. But the community came together and folded the rest for them, of them for her. And it was big and touching. It, that story is a little wrong. Uh-huh. She actually uh, succeeded in folding all of her paper cranes. And according to her brother, she folded about 1,300. And when we read that in school, I remember we all had to fold paper cranes afterwards. Yeah. I am terrible at origami. No, so this, she is, um, she is kind of a children's hero in Japan. They all, it's, she's a, she's a big figure. Yeah. And so she folded her cranes. The book was a little wrong. Well, you couldn't have it end with her succeeding and then dying anyway. That wouldn't be an uplifting story to American children. not at all. America, listen to this. Uh, survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki get a monthly allowance from the government and all of their medical care is free. From the Japanese government. From the Japanese government. So, yeah. So we caused universal health care and a universal basic income somewhere else. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah. So uh, survivors were also at a higher risk of heart failure, stroke, asthma, bronchitis, uh, gastrointestinal conditions. It accounts for about 16% of all non-cancer deaths of the survivors. So it's COVID. Kind of, but no. <laughs> no, but like all of those symptoms. Yeah. So it's the radiation 
uh, did contribute to these other problems that weren't cancer, but still directly attributed to radiation. Right. There is no evidence that exposure of having an impact on the descendants of the survivors. Oh, wow. But this gets into epigenetics, so we may never actually know if there's been any impact on the survivors. On the descendants of the survivors. And if you want to learn about epigenetics, go back a few episodes. Yeah. So, man, it's all coming together. Oh, yeah. Mine is today, too. You just wait. Ooh. So, now we're going to talk about the Hiroshima Peace Memorial. The push to transform a large area of Hiroshima into a memorial started in 1946, less than a year afterwards. But the city was broke because, uh, for some reason, tax revenue had gone down about 80%. What? And they couldn't really fund any sort of fitting memorial. Luckily, the government intervened and passed the Peace Memorial City Construction Law, which allowed them to cut through some red tape and, like, you know, get some government land for free to do this stuff. And, yes, state-owned land was handed over to make a memorial, and they also removed a bunch of financial obstacles in the way of the city actually completing this. Also, much like in Chicago, when they did this, it moved a lot of poor citizens out of the area who had been living in a hastily constructed shantytown. Is that good or bad? I can't know if I, I don't know if I need to roll my eyes or not. Both. My eyes don't know what to do. Yeah. It's like they it basically made a bunch of people who were mostly homeless, more homeless. Uh-huh. And it was a while because they were, uh, again, foreigners and lower class people. They didn't really get much in the way of assistance for years after that. Uh-huh. There's also a fight about the memorial itself, about what it should be. Kind of like our, um, is it the Vietnam Memorial? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a large building that mostly survived. Uh-huh. It's the Genbaku Dome. It used to be kind of an exhibition hall, but... Because where the bomb exploded, it didn't knock the building over. It was right above it, so it just compressed down, which buildings are very good at dealing with, what with gravity and all. Uh Uh-huh. So it didn't really destroy much of it. It just broke the glass. It did kill everyone inside of it. Yeah. And it was just, it's kind of a blasted, ruined building with this big steel dome above it. And there were two schools of thought. One is keep it intact as a reminder of the destruction and like, you know, this event that happened. And the other school of thought is we want to get rid of this painful reminder that it like causes the survivors like just pain every day looking at this large building. Ultimately, in 1966, the mayor and the city council funded its preservation. City voted to preserve it indefinitely. So it has become the like central piece of the Memorial Park, which it was also declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1996. That was despite objections from China and the United States. So Clinton wasn't on board. Clinton was not on board. Uh, China was against it because of all of the, it's like, well, it's like, why are we, like, because like it doesn't address the atrocities committed against China by Japan, which is not related. That's kind of a two quoque argument. (laughs) Two quoque would be like, it, the past actions. It's like, how can, yeah, how can we have this memorial for your dead when so many died in China because of the Japanese? I, you know, I think that'd be more of a, like, begging the question. Yeah. And, of course, the United States was just against it because it's like, let's just not talk about this. We don't mention it. It never happened. Yeah. The park itself was completed in the late 50s. It's got a museum. It's got a convention hall. And it's got a memorial to the victims and survivors that have died since of nearly 300,000 people. Jesus. Yeah. So uh, Hiroshima's mayor... Uh, said, humans destroyed Hiroshima, but humans also rebuilt it. This is a holy site, somewhere people can come to compare the horrors of the past with this, with what the city of Hiroshima has become today. So they, they rebuilt remarkably quickly. They are like, it is a wonderful city that I would actually kind of like to visit because in researching this, I ended up on a lot of like tourism board sites. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a festival in which people in scary demon costumes pinch children to make them cry. <laughs> and it's supposed to be good luck. All right. So people are bringing their kids to be like harassed by men in demon costumes. And there's all these videos of like parents laughing as their children just scream in terror. <laughs> it's it's my kind of scene. See, it reminds me of walking through like the West End part of London where there are a lot of street performers and they will grab your child or your girlfriend and hold on to them until you give them a pound. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. That's my that's a nightmare. <laughs> so are you ready for some questions? Yes. Will the fact that thousands of slave laborers died in the explosion at Hiroshima be on the test? I feel like the answer to all of these questions is going to be no, that will not be on the test because I'm using American yeah. schools. Yeah. Will the fact that America tried its best to cover up the radiation sickness and like cancer rates be on the test? No. Will the fact that you can actually go there now? It's perfectly safe, and they've got a uh, baseball team that, even though it is currently at the bottom of the league, is still really fun to watch be on the test. Yes, because it makes it look like what we did wasn't that bad. Yeah. Oh, you remember the thing? It was like they were talking about the American response to it. It was kind of like, let's ignore it and hope it'll go away. It was like, with this was like, no, this was something we had to do, and we're not going to talk about it. It was uh-huh. kind of like an indifference almost. Of uh-huh. like, this is the thing that happened, and we're just going to go on. Uh-huh. Very Midwestern. It's like, we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to drive in silence for the next two hours. <laughs> we all saw that We all saw that deer get hit by that semi. We're just not going to talk about it. So those are my questions. All right. Oh, wow. You talked longer than usual. Yeah. There's a lot, to go, lot going on there. And unfortunately for you, mine is also long. Oh, goody. I get to edit this. <laughs> so my sources. Britannica. Genie Annette, Wikipedia, JSTOR Daily, Live Science, Hollywood Reporter, The Intellectual Devotional, The Lost Museum Archive, History.com, New York Times, HistoryBuff.com, and Top Tens with a Z.com. I have not told Austin what I am covering. I am, I am afraid and intrigued. So he's come up many times in our podcast. He's everywhere. He even had a movie made about him, and the movie was wrong. I'm talking today about P.T. Barnum. <gasps> oh, that son of a bitch. I'm going to open my drink. Ah, that refreshing Coke Zero. Mm. Coca-Cola, sponsor us. us. So Austin and I saw The Greatest Showman in theaters, and the movie is amazing. I'll give it that. The music's fantastic. Hugh Jackman's wonderful. I've been in love with Zac Efron for years, and Zendaya, and I did look up how to pronounce her name, it is Zendaya. Zendaya, okay, her musical number where they're they're doing the trapeze stuff, and she's singing to Zephron, that's so good. Yeah, Austin's sitting there and he's just like enamored of this moment. Because Austin, if you didn't know, when we started dating, hated musicals. I had only been exposed to stuff like community theater productions of Oklahoma and The Music Man. And I was not a fan. Yeah. And so I started like, you need to watch the tech is what I was telling him in the beginning. So I like had him watch the Tony performance of Hamilton and things like that. He's like, oh, during the Tony's Hamilton, he's like, how'd they do that? How'd they do that? How'd they do that? And so watching them, and obviously we know that there's movie magic happening in that scene, and mm-hmm. all obviously they're pre-recorded with their singing, but it was still just fucking magic. Zendaya is a goddamn treasure. Yes, and, she is. And uh, her person doesn't come up in this, but she is based on an actual acrobat, and Zac Efron's character is mostly fake slash an amalgam of other people. 
So this movie, the movie, has an excellent message about accepting yourself for who you are, and it displays Barnum as someone who promoted his performers in this way. I mean, sure, spoiler alert, at the end, he is a total dick because he decides to draw all the attention to himself on what should be his daughter's day, but overall, he seems like a pretty good dude. I've had people tell me when I research the true stories behind movies that I'm ruining it. I'm not the one ruining it. The people involved with the actual history are the ones ruining it. Although I don't even think it ruins anything because I think movies and plays and musicals and whatever are opportunities. They're opportunities to learn more about this historical event. Like, I never would have known who Hercules Mulligan was and told all of you about it if I hadn't seen Hamilton. It's an opportunity. And, I mean, it's not like the Barnums are profiting off of this movie. P.T. Barnum is super duper dead. And I actually looked up, like, I googled, are the Barnums profiting off of this movie? And as far as I can tell, no. So Phineas Taylor Barnum. Phineas? I love the name Phineas. Oh, it's a good name. It's the name of my ukulele. Oh, yeah. My ukulele is named Phineas Gage. Uh, He was uh, Phineas... Barnum was born on July 5th, 1810 in Bethel, Connecticut. His father was Philo or Philo Barnum, an innkeeper, tailor, and store owner, and his mother was Irene Taylor. He began making his own money around age 12 when he sold snacks and cherry rum during gatherings and was able to purchase his own livestock with the money that he made. His dad died when he was 15, and so P.T. had to support the family. Now, if Genianette is right, when he was born, he had five older living half-siblings from his dad's first marriage, one of whom was still a child and a girl, and then he had five younger full siblings. So he is the oldest boy in this family at 15, and now he has to be the provider for the family. And so six siblings, his mom. So he started holding a bunch of jobs. And then when he was still a teenager, like 18, 19, he began publishing a weekly newspaper So when Barnum was an older teenager, he began publishing a weekly newspaper called Herald of Freedom in Danbury, Connecticut. This was not so much a newspaper as a bunch of opinion pieces against church elders. (laughs) So this ultimately resulted in three libel suits against him and he served some jail time. But instead of shutting him up, he was like, I'm getting famous. I fucking love this. I'm in the spotlight. This is all I want to do for the rest of my life is be famous. Oh, someone cannot tell good attention from bad attention, can mm-hmm. he? I think we're going to... Did I notice a pattern early on? Mm-hmm. In 1829, at the age of 19, he married 21-year-old Charity Hallett, who was played by Michelle Williams in the movie. Oh, unpopular opinion. This is like my most unpopular and popular opinion. I do not like Michelle Williams. I actually had originally written in here, pause for Austin's hatred of Michelle Williams. You know me too well, because she's psychic. <laughs> or because you complain about her. And there are two Michelle Williams actresses, and I've had to, like, like when I say, oh, Michelle Williams, I have to clarify whether I'm talking about the one that he hates or the one that he doesn't know who she is. Yes. The one who was a member of Destiny's Child, yeah. I think. My brain is blanking. <laughs> a few years later, in around 1834, he began his showman life. He moved to New York City and purchased an elderly enslaved woman named Joyce Heth from R.W. Lindsay, who had previously tried to exploit her by claiming she was the childhood nurse of George Washington. She was not. He was born in 1732. This was 1834. So people were like, yeah, whatever, R.W. Lindsay. And it wasn't working, so he sold her because what use is an old slave? Well, Barnum was like, I'm smarter than you. I can make this work. 
So he created posters that said, Joyce Heth is unquestionably the world, the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world. She was the slave of Augustine Wilt Washington, the father of General Washington, and was the first person who put clothes on the unconscious infant. I don't know why he was unconscious. Who later in later days led our heroic fathers unto glory, to victory, and freedom. To use her own language when speaking of the illustrious father of this country, she raised him. Joyce Heth was born in the year 1674 and was consequently now arrived at the astonishing age of 161 years. People were stupid. At this point, Heth was actually around 79. <laughs> and had been born when George Washington was around 24. She was blind and almost completely paralyzed. She had some use of one arm. She could speak, though, and was actually apparently like a very nice, friendly, happy lady. But she never said, I was George Washington's nurse, in her own words. In fact, she actively said, I was not his wet nurse, like people were saying. However, she did agree to this performance thing, as much as an enslaved person can agree to things. She was very small and had deep wrinkles, probably from a life of hard labor. So people were skeptical, but like, mm, maybe. Barnum was like, that's not enough to make people believe it. So he just kind of let her fingernails grow until they turned into talons, because you know how your fingernails yeah. grow. And there is a large possibility that he pulled out all of her teeth. Ugh. Because, you know, looks what, makes you look what older. What an asshole. Now, that's not confirmed, but there is a widely believed thing about that. For seven months, he took her on a tour around the Northeast. He got her to tell stories about her supposed time with Little George, is what she called him, and sing for the people in the crowds. She would sing these, like, gospel hymns that moved people to tears. Some reports said that her performances brought in around $1,500 a week, which would be about $38,000 per week now. But not everyone believed it. With a Boston paper saying she wasn't even a real human being, but some kind of automaton or robot, which they brought, which of course brought in even more people because they're like, is it a person or a robot? So Barnum was like, yeah, you can go up and touch her. This blind lady, go up and touch her. It's fine. Yeah. But uh, that's not what got Barnum famous. No, it's worse. How? So Heth died. Joyce Heth died. Instead of just letting her die and move on to whatever comes next, he sold tickets to her public autopsy. Let that sink in. This old woman, likely laid out nude because it's an autopsy, cut open and her organs removed for 50 cents a ticket. 1,500 people came to see this old woman's body cut open. But here's the thing. The doctor who performed the autopsy, David L. Rogers, at the end declared that based on his findings in front of the crowd, this woman was not 160 years old. It wasn't possible based on the organs and the skin. Like this woman could not be that old. He, you know, kind of gathered that she was around 80, which she was. <laughs> this resulted, of course, though, in Joyce, not Barnum, being called a fraud. But Barnum didn't want this to hurt his or her reputation, so he started saying, oh, that was just some other old lady. She's on tour in Europe. She's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Interestingly, Barnum would later become an avid abolitionist. And to say that this couldn't happen and that also be true would be a too quoquely uh, fallacy, as we learned last episode. Mm -hmm. Because your past behaviors don't necessarily inform your current ones. I mean, they do, unlike you know, a nature versus nurture sense, but yeah. um, things you can like change opinions on. So now after Joyce's death, Barnum was like, well, shit, what do I do? Because he didn't have anything else. 
So he tried sort of a variety troupe, which didn't work. Then he took all the money he had made off of Joyce and bought John Scudder's American Museum, which was at the time filled with pretty normal museum stuff like dead animals and wax figures. He renamed it Barnum's American Museum and turned it into his carnival with theatrical events and beauty contests and, of course, what would ultimately be called a freak show. And he attracted attention to it. And this is kind of in the movie, but I don't think they draw a lot of attention to the fact that he did this. On top of the building is a lighthouse lamp, which he would turn on at night to make sure everybody knew where this was. It's kind of like spotlights today, except it's shining at your fucking house. And then there were also giant paintings of animals on the outside and big flags that you can see during the day and hot air balloons from the the roof. So lots of attention. He claimed that he was trying to lift the spirits of people. There had recently been a financial crisis that we never learned about in school. It was called the panic of whatever year it was by creating this world that they could go and lose themselves in for a little bit. As he had learned from working with Joyce and especially from her autopsy, people love fucked up stuff. So his things rotated and he kept some of the original mundane things from the museum. And he also had magicians and jugglers, all pretty normal. But then he was like, what will really draw people in? Well, the first thing he brought in was the Fiji mermaid. This was a mummified body of something that appeared to have the torso and head of a human and lower body of a fish. It was likely a young orangutan and a salmon. There are photos of something like it, but it's actually gone missing. They don't, nobody knows where the actual one is. It swam away. Um, I've been to freak shows because obviously Oklahoma, I can't remember if it was the county or the state fair, had a freak show. Um, that seems like more of a state fair thing. County fairs are much smaller. There weren't people in it, thankfully, but they definitely had shit like this mermaid and lots of deformed dead animals in bottles and visibly mistreated animals that were alive. Like, I remember Aww. there was like a Shetland pony that they claimed was like a, like a dwarf horse or some shit. And I'm like, you're in Oklahoma. Even I ride horses and I know that's a goddamn Shetland pony. So I was 10 and I'm like, this is fucked up. I want to leave. Um, and then came the people. Now, there had been some people earlier on, but they weren't people with disabilities necessarily. It was like exotic women, to use his word, or people with albinism, like things like that. He brought in Chang and Ang Bunker. The last name was the name that they chose when they became naturalized U.S. citizens. I have no idea what, if any, last name they had before. They were from Thailand. At the time, Thailand was called Siam, which is where we get the phrase Siamese twins from. But the actual term is conjoined twins. These dudes were smart. And so they knew which way the wind blew for someone like them. They were connected and there was a lot of belief that maybe they could be disconnected. And even now that kind of persists because it was a very small, what looked like piece of skin, but it actually turns out that their liver was in it just a little bit. So they had a shared liver, but the rest of it, and even today, we probably could have disconnected them and they would have been fine. But back then their liver would have been like, oh no, and killed them. So they actually definitely did get paid for their work and they quit in 1839 and then toured intermittently after that when they felt like it, moving to North Carolina to live otherwise normal lives. They married a pair of sisters, had, I didn't write it down, but I think it was 21 kids between them. Damn. They would just switch off whose house they were at. (laughs) And they, like I said, they lived in North Carolina and went on to be slave owners. Huh. Yeah, you never think about, and we were actually talking the other day, it's like, wait, so we know that segregation uh, of schools was about white versus black and that other ethnicities weren't as effective. We talked about this in the Mendez versus Westminster episode. But like, what about other things? What, what kind of segregation was there? And apparently being Thai, you could own slaves. Um, and I just think it's interesting, though, because the reason that they left their original manager before Barnum was because he thought they thought he was too controlling of their everyday lives. Huh. Mm-hmm. Then there was Charles Stratton, who would go on to be his biggest moneymaker ever. I also want to just briefly mention that every article refers to these people as Barnum's exhibits, which is dehumanizing them even further. 
probably what he called them. Charles Stratton had more or less stopped growing at six months old and was 25 inches tall and only 15 pounds. He was given the name of General Tom Thumb. Now, it'd be nice to think that this was a case like Chang and Aang, who were like, this is the only life we really can have where we're not going to end up homeless. So let's go to this place. Yeah, uh, Charles was four. He was four years old. Really? Because in the movie, he was like a gruff voiced, like, 30-year-old. Well, he comes back and forth. He comes back later. He's This is his life from age four through the rest of his life. This is what he does. Um, so he saw Charles somewhere and was like, I want that kid. So he trained him to sing and dance, pretend to be small versions of famous people. He ultimately grew to be 39 inches tall, which is 3.25 feet, a full 11 inches shorter than Sam Humphrey, who played him in the movie. <laughs> Barnum claimed he was 11, probably to make it sound less awful. Stratton became world famous performing people like Queen Victoria and Abraham Lincoln. And he actually ultimately struck out on his own and became his own touring act completely outside of Barnum. So that this was his life. And later on, as much as it could be a choice for somebody to start this in the earth for, it became his choice. Barnum, after a while, was like, hey, maybe I shouldn't just have these freaks and not be seen as a sole like novelty act. So he decided to risk everything by spending like a good deal of his money to bring Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale, to the States in 1849. She is played by Rebecca Ferguson in the movie. He had never heard her sing. He had no idea what she looked like. And I could not figure out how he had heard of her. Although he did go to Europe on and off, so that probably is how. Uh, but like many of the others who had no other place to go, she was already really wealthy because she was the opera singer in Sweden. She was like, he's offering me a shit ton of money. This is an opportunity to do good things for Sweden. So she went and agreed. She toured with him for about a year, earning her around $350,000. Like, yes, she got paid. Charles Stratton got paid. Chang and Aang got paid which would be about $11 million today. Damn. Most of which she donated to build or improve schools in Sweden. Hugo. But she quickly became uncomfortable with how much Barnum was marketing her like a product. And she severed ties with him. It was amicable, but she was like, no, I'm not your product, which I think comes up a little bit in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, no, in the movie, it's because she, he rejected her advances on him. And then she started this rumor that he was sleeping with her and ruined his life. Opposite opposite Ugh. but this is a big part of re- of the reason opera became popular in the u.s before that it was like oh yeah that thing that happens in europe so he popularized so oh man austin loves opera i do love opera i like opera too but so it's all it's because of barnum huh neat i'm not at all conflicted so far none of this is his circus that comes later Oh, and I did mention just a second ago, he toured Europe. Um, I couldn't find a lot of information about what happened over there other than making a lot of money. And mostly he did it with Tom Thumb at this point. But he did try apparently to buy Shakespeare's childhood home and England was like, no thanks. (laughs) And he came back for some reason as a teetotaler, which is someone who not only doesn't drink, but tries actively to dissuade others from doing so. Now, if you don't want to drink, that's awesome. That's awesome. Live your life. Don't tell other people what to do unless you're like genuinely worried about them, in which case, you know, do some research, find out how to talk yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, the uh, way they do interventions on TV is not the way to do no. interventions. No. Do, do not do. Do not bring in a TV camera. Yeah. So at the time, theater in general was controversial. This isn't something you hear a lot about in schools, but it's actually like a major part of theater history throughout all of theater history. On and off, and it wasn't just in Shakespearean or even Greek times, women weren't allowed to be involved with theater and men played all all the roles. But this, I mean, that's not the case at this point, but just, I think it's interesting. Because they, the church, just like they had in England when we talked about Shakespeare a while back, believed that theaters were dens of sin and brothels. 
This is reputation, not actuality in general. I don't know. I remember high school. I remember our high school theater. That was a den of horniness. That's just high school. So he was like, I want to legitimize theater. And so he did it by opening his own theater, which he called the Moral Lecture Room. That's a title. And he put up a play called The Drunkard. The Drunkard was a pro-temperance play about how alcohol will make you violent, suicidal, delirious, etc. And it became the most popular play in U.S. history up until that point. It is still available. You still can purchase rights to this and put it up. It has been revised. I don't know what to what extent. I found the original script, but I couldn't find the revised one. And I didn't feel like reading it. Um, yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> It wasn't until Uncle Tom's Cabin showed up a few decades later that it was kind of shoved off of its pedestal. And Uncle Tom's Cabin became the first, for lack of a better word, blockbuster play in U.S. history. And it came out before the end of the Civil War. But it was, and Uncle Tom's Cabin now, when you look at it, is like outdated. Mm -hmm. But then it was the first time people had been shown slaves as people who have like lives and thoughts. Um, Yeah, Harriet Beecher Stowe was like wrongly blamed for the Civil War. So he actually did, in his theater, the Moral Lecture Room, put up Uncle Tom's Cabin later on, along with a bunch of Shakespeare plays. But because it is the Moral Lecture Room, he watered them down and made them safer for people to watch. (laughs) Now, there is only one time in history when Shakespeare has been purposefully redacted and censored, and I can't remember the name of the guy. No, this was just Barnum doing his own. Uh, He also wrote an autobiography, which was overall loved, but, and he kept revising it and like republishing it. And it sold over a million copies. Mark Twain thought it was great, but a lot of people are also like, this dude who's exploiting people is trying to get pity from us. Fuck this guy. Barnum continued to try to diversify his spending, this time working to develop each Bridgeport, Connecticut through his investments in the 1850s. But he invested in a bad company. Jerome's clock company went bankrupt within a couple years and he lost everything, which led to a lot of public humiliation and criticism from people who saw Barnum as a fraudster, which he was. His saving grace was Tom Thumb or Charles Stratton, who had at this point gone on his own way doing his own thing. Well, he hears about this and he's like, okay, I'm going to go save this guy. So he brought Barnum on tour with him in Europe. I don't know what Barnum did during that time, but he was on tour with him. And Barnum also became a popular lecturer against alcohol. Within a few years, Barnum recouped his losses and bought a mansion, obviously, because that's what you do when you've recently been poor, Mm -hmm. and took control back over his museum. He also opened the first public aquarium in the United States, which burned down. How do you burn down an aquarium? Okay, I'm actually not going to people, like, in this time to mention every single thing of his that burned down. Was it for the insurance money? It's enough that it's kind of like, um... But seriously, it's like aquariums are mostly water. How do you burn down an aquarium? I mean, everything was made like shit back then. Yeah. But yet, like, he had houses burned down, he had businesses burned down, everything burned down around this guy. And then, so once he's kind of restarted things, Chang and Aang come back. They wanted to send their billion children to college, and so they needed money, and their own on and off touring hadn't made enough, so they did a six-week exhibition with him, which made them enough money to go home. That same year, which was 1860, Barnum acquired William Henry Johnson, who was, quote-unquote, a man monkey. He was around 18 at the time. His parents were former slaves, and he was born with microcephaly, which is basically your brain doesn't develop properly in utero, and at best leaves you with a small head with an odd shape, kind of like a pen they are often called pinheads. You will see this if you watch American Horror Story, what was it, Circus? Uh, Freak Show. Freak Show. Um, One of the actresses plays a pinhead. And 
the actress is wonderful. That season is my, I think, probably my least favorite. I don't. It's, again, there's no the newest season is my least favorite. Roanoke was the only good season. I loved season one. I love traditional ghost story shit. Hotel is actually based on the oh crap, I just blanked on it. Um, the hotel that like Richard Ramirez lived at for a while, the one where um, Elisa Lamb recently died. That hotel is what hotel is based on. Ooh. Because that hotel is hella haunted. I liked hotel. Roanoke was excellent. I didn't like Freak Show. Coven, I think Coven was overhyped before I got to see it. So it was it was a disappointment. Anyway, people with microcephaly, if they live, usually have intellectual disabilities and seizures. But nobody really knows if William had those. And those aren't necessarily going to happen. His parents put him into a different circus initially. And he was called the missing link there. And he caught Barnum's notice. Burnham, Barnum purchased him more or less, even though he is not an enslaved person, gave him a furry suit, styled his hair to accentuate the shape of his head, and caught, taught him a fake language to speak. He was called Zip the Pinhead and was displayed in a literal cage and forced to eat raw meat, though he was billed as learning how to have more civilized habits. Now, again, though, he did get paid and he act and just like many of the others, he eventually parted ways and went on to live his own life, which he continued this life, knowing that this is the life that he has. Um, he ended up actually being a performer at Coney Island and he saved a little girl from drowning. Oh, so like, there is very little evidence that there was anything actually wrong with his ability to reason. And then Barnum found Anna Swan, who I actually like randomly found on the Internet the other day because uh, somebody had a really big baby. And I was like, what's the biggest baby ever? And it was Anna Swan's <laughs> second baby. <laughs> Uh, she was seven foot eleven and was a literal genius. She and then he found Commodore Nutt, who was his new Tom Thumb. This is still not the circus. What? During this, he became heavily involved with politics. He was a Democrat, and at the time, the Democrats were the racist pro-Confederate people. And he left Dem the Democratic Party because he they were supporting the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which was like, yay, slavery. And he was like, yeah, I'm not on board with that anymore. So he switched to being a Republican. During the Civil War, he revamped his museum, so it was pro-union. Everything is pro-union. He ended up hiring Pauline Cushman, who I'm going to cover one of these days. She's actually somebody I've started research on several times, and then for some reason I've just not. Pauline Cushman was a fucking badass who had been a spy for the Union and was an actress. So he hired her to come in and like do reenactments and plays and shit. Well, this resulted in a Confederate dude attempting to burn down the museum in 1864. He was not successful, but the museum mysteriously did burn down the following year, near, nearly killing Anna Swan because she was upstairs and the stairs were completely engulfed with flames and she was too big to go through a window. I have no idea how she got out, but man she apparently managed to flag somebody down who was able to get her out. While running his museum, he was like the museum's in New York City, but apparently he's living in Connecticut this whole time. And he was elected to their legislature in 1854. He was a what? No. Mm -hmm. No! He would be a state congressman for four terms. He was for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and said, A human soul that God has created and Christ died for is not to be trifled with. It may be the body of a Chinaman, a Turk, an Arab, or a Hottentot. It is still an immortal spirit. Yes, all of these terms are now offensive. Maybe not Turks, but it kind of depends on context. Yeah. Um, Hottentot, I looked up. It's obviously a no longer used term for the Khoi Khoi, which is a non-Bantu indigenous tribe in Africa, South Africa. He also actually did own up to owning slaves. He 
Joyce was not his only slave. Apparently he had spent some time in the South, which I was not able to find anything about. But he talked about like, I lived in the South and he said that he whipped his slaves and that he should be whipped a thousand times for whipping them. But he also tried to deflect blame by saying, I was a Democrat and didn't know better. Dude, you're capable of making your own thoughts. Uh, uh. It's like, just because Austin and I, like we talked about earlier, like, yeah, we're voting for Biden. It doesn't mean we like everything Biden or other Democrats are doing. Yeah. It's like, come on. We we are people capable of thoughts. Yes. Then comes the circus. Uh, He started P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome in Delvin, Wisconsin, for some reason, uh, in 1870. It went under a lot of different names over the years and involved continuing his display of so-called freaks until he met James Bailey in 1881. They merged their shows into Barnum and Bailey's Circus. They got hold of an African elephant from the London Zoo. This was their first big thing. And we see this elephant in The Greatest Showman. Its name is Jumbo. First big, first big attraction. And then they started adding more animals and acrobats and freaks. And Tom and Tom Thumb came back. And this damn place kept getting lit on fire or catching on fire. Over and over and over, their circus got lit on fire. Oh my god. I think I think everything in this time just catches fire constantly. I mean, it's partly, this was the time period where people are switching over from candles to gaslighting, both of which are dangerous. Gaslighting mm-hmm. is less dangerous than open flame, yep. um, which was oil and pff, everything would go up. And everything was made of wood. And cloth, because it's were cloth, And there was straw everywhere. But they were likely the first circus to have its own train because he looked at it and went, this is the easiest way to travel. And this, like, we're not going to have any kind of, like, highway system that is usable, but the trains will always run because weather doesn't affect them as much. So this was really smart. I'm going to mention a few of the other so-called freaks. Some of them came at this point, some of them came at earlier points, some of them came later, but the timeline's murky and I just want to make sure they all get their due. Uh, These are not all of them, obviously, but these are some of the more famous ones. Uh, The Warren sisters, Lavinia and Minnie, who were both little people. One of them, I think it was Lavinia, married Tom Thumb, and it was this big over-the-top ceremony likely arranged by Barnum. Myrtle Corbin, who had four legs and was brought in when she was 13. You've seen pictures of her. Prince Rondion, which was not his real name, but nobody knows what his real name was, who was from Guyana and had Tetra Amelia syndrome, meaning he was born without arms or legs. His tricks were rolling and lighting his own cigarettes and writing with his mouth. Now, that all sounds... You know, this is something this guy can do. That's pretty cool. Except they also would dress him up as a snake, caterpillar, or potato. A potato. A potato. Potato. Apparently he was really smart and really funny and later married someone and had five kids. Then there were the wild men of Borneo who were mentally disabled little people. Though they each weighed only 45 pounds, they could also each lift 300 pounds. So they, like, their biggest thing was they'd go into the audience and pick up audience members. That sounds like they actually, like, they end up being part of this until their 90s, and they were both, like, completely blind at that point, and they were actually very well cared for, um, and all these people are getting paid, by the way. But their fake identities had become so ingrained in society that their obituaries used the fake stories that they had made. Then there were two bearded ladies, Annie Jones and Josephine Boadishedne, whose last name was changed to Clofulia by Barnum. Uh, Josephine was his first one of him understanding the timeline. And he had actually really hoped people would debate about her gender. And like, this is a man, this is a woman. Well, that didn't happen. Most people were like, yeah, she's a lady with a beard. Like, that's unfortunate for her. But she has a beard and it's a woman. So Barnum was mad about this. So he hired someone to sue him for fraud over this woman. (laughs) Because obviously she must be a man. And this woman was put through having several doctors look at her body and her husband going in all to testify that she was in fact a woman. 
And then there was Annie Jones, who was portrayed as Letty Lutz in the movie by the fabulous Kiala Settle. Um, She has the big number. Annie was from Virginia. She was born with hair on her face. Her parents put her on display while she was like months old. They were disgusted by her at first and then they saw her as a money-making opportunity. Barnum heard about her quickly. She was called the little Esau, which is uh, Esau. I don't know. It's a biblical name. It was it was changed like from the infant Esau to the little Esau to the grown-up Esau, whatever, as she got older because her career lasted 36 years until she died at 37 uh, because Esau apparently means hairy. She was, uh, when she was real little and working for Barnum, she was kidnapped, possibly arranged by Barnum, by a New York phrenologist. And I'm talking she was little, little. There's a train. It's a circus train going by. I wish. It's probably just more coal. <laughs> It's like, why can't we have a, oh my gosh, but we had circus trains going by. What if there was a circus train accident and 500 clowns died in front of our house? That happened. Not here, but I think it was Chicago. There's like yeah. a. The, tra- the train full of clowns that died? Yeah. It's a real thing. Uh-huh. Look it up. It's terrifying. Well, then Barnum got to run in and be the hero and found her at an exhibition in a church fair. And so he saved her. And then the guy apparently tried to claim he was her dad. And then they like separated her from the dad. And then she, they're like, where are your parents? And the dad guy was there. Her parents were there. She ran to her parents and they were like, fuck you, dude. And went to jail. Uh, (laughs) Probably because Barnum set him up. Uh, And then there was Chang Yu Sang, which was the Chinese giant. He was over eight feet tall. Barnum dressed him in stereotypical Chinese robes to make him look even taller. The goal was to make fun of the fact that Chinese people are not as tall as white people. And then there's this one guy. He didn't stay very long, likely uh, just to earn some money before returning to whatever he was normally doing. And then Isaac W. Sprague, who was the human skeleton, he had progressive muscular atrophy, which made his muscles too weak for normal work. So he just auditioned for Barnum because he looked like a skeleton. And his entire job was just to stand there and have people look at him because he really (laughs) couldn't do anything else. And the only thing he had was like a... He had a, like, constantly full cup of milk because they thought that would help him, like, stay strong and healthy. Now, here's the tough thing. We know Barnum mistreated Joyce. There's no question about that. Whether or not he pulled out her teeth is irrelevant. Whether or not he even gave her the money that was earned is irrelevant. This woman was not treated well. But it's harder to kind of tell with the others. It sounds like, like, whenever he would have a problem, they would come back and defend him if they no longer worked for him. Now, with the ones who came in young, that could be a, you know, I was abused by my parents, but I defend them thing. But a lot of them that defended him were the ones who came in as adults who, as much as you could choose this life at the time, they chose it. Because we have to look at this historical context. At this time, and we still have a shit long way to go in how we treat people with disabilities, people who just look different. Back then, it was go join the circus, hope your family hides and provides for you, or become homeless and die on the streets. So Barnum was giving them a place where they could have food and shelter, and they were getting paid. But they were also being treated as objects and not people for the most part. So it's a really hard thing to think about because when we look at things strictly through a modern lens, things are horrible. We look at a lot of things in history through a modern strictly lens, it's horrible. But if we also look at this through the lens of the time, these people, most of them would have ended up dead on the streets. So it's really hard to like make a moral judgment here, um, especially because they they all, except for Joyce, said he was good to us. But he was also using them. Yeah. But also, I mean, look at today and, you know, people being used in warehouses and call centers, even here in the United States. And it's like, no, I've got a great job. Well, I work, tw- I work, tw- I work 18 hours a day in an unair conditioned room lifting boxes mm-hmm. for a, for the richest man to ever live. Yeah. Um, 1873. His wife, Charity, died leaving him with four adult daughters. He quickly remarried to a woman, an English 
It autocorrected to socialist. Socialite named Nancy Fish, who was 40 years younger than him, i.e. the age of his daughters. Ew. There are rumors that he was having an affair with Nancy while he was still married to Charity, hence my whole opposite thing earlier. But despite being the same age as his daughters and despite the quickly remarrying, everybody actually got along. Like there were no real issues. She's not in the movie. And that's important because a lot of the things that happened in the movie happened while his kids were adults and he was married to Nancy. So the movie like made this all, you know, about this dad with these four little... Actually, I don't even think there were four kids in the movie, were there? It's been a long time. I don't know. I think there was... I remember two. two. Mm-hmm. I think one was a boy or No, I they just... were all girls, but oh, one no. of them was named Austin. Like yeah. in real life. The, yeah, the, yeah, the actress. That's what's going on. Um, so he's doing all this stuff, and he's still a politician. He ran for U.S. Congress, but ended up losing against another person named Barnum, likely a third cousin. <laughs> he served as mayor of Bridgeport for a while, during which he did some good things, like improving their water quality and installing gas lighting and helping open the Bridgeport Hospital. But he also did some not-so-good things, like bringing in some really strict liquor laws and prostitution laws. And I say that's bad because those disproportionately hurt the women, not the men who are soliciting them. And I'm not going to get into modern ones. Then he returned to state Congress. In 1879, he sponsored a bill we have talked about before, the one that prohibited contraceptives in Connecticut. (laughs) I can't remember if I mentioned on that episode that P.T. Barnum, the circus guy, was making it so you couldn't have contraceptives in Connecticut. But Connecticut had some of the strictest contraceptive laws. Thanks, Barnum. He also worked on legislation that would ban alcohol and the death penalty. And then 1883 comes around. So, like, a lot of things. He's, he's, like, I texted Austin, like, this is a busy man. 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge was open, but people assumed it was unstable. To the point where they stampeded away from it and 12 people died. (laughs) Well, earlier, before it was done, Barnum and Bailey had come to him and said, we will give you $5,000 if you let us have a parade across your bridge with our animals. And they were like, no, that's dumb. Well, after this, they were like, yeah, we'll do that now because we need to prove that the bridge is stable. So they went across on May 17th, 1884 with 21 elephants who went, who weighed around 10,000 pounds each and 17 camels. And they saved the Brooklyn Bridge by doing <laughs> this because everybody was like, oh, well, if these things can cross it, we certainly can. Then he also helped found Tufts University in Boston, making a gift of $50,000, which is ma- uh, nearly $14 million now, to found its museum, which would later be known as the Barnum Museum of Natural History and its Department of Natural History. To this day, Jumbo the Elephant is their mascot, and the students are the Jumbos. Huh. Now, this so- a lot of this sounds great, right? Yeah. And a lot of it is great. But Barnum used this to coin the phrase that we still hear a little bit today, profitable philanthropy, saying, admitting, admitting that he would not be doing this if he couldn't make money off of it. He's not wrong. The ability to make money off of something is an incentive to do it, just like tax breaks were an incentive to do charitable giving. Now, that's not really necessary for anybody who makes less than $3 billion, but... Yeah. And, if you, if and and it's been proven, too, because charities have said their donations have gone down since they got rid of itemizing. In November of 1890, Barnum, Barnum started getting sick. He had his ups and downs, but apparently never left his room. Um, and he died of, as the New York Times put it, degeneration of the muscles of the heart on April 7th, 1891, at the age of 80. Other sources said that it was a stroke. He was aware that death was coming, and he even asked the Evening Post to print his obituary so he could read it. Despite being against the death penalty, because I talked about that earlier, his wife asked that when it was clear there was no hope left, he would be given sedatives to kind of help things along. So there was some uh, euthanasia happening with this guy. (laughs) He ended up leaving Nancy $100,000 or about $28 million, their home and an annuity of $40,000. His children were not as lucky. I couldn't find any details, but they were apparently pissed. 
So when we look at P.T. Barnum, it's really hard to paint him as a villain or a hero, which is what history teacher classes like to do and what the media likes to do. You're good or you're bad and there is no in between. And that's what the movie did is they went with the good stuff, except for the ending where he's a dick. Yeah, even then he's not that he's big not of a dick. He's not bad. He's just drawing attention away from his daughter when it should be her day. So he got these people livelihoods and set them on a path and let them go. They weren't being held hostage. They could leave at any time. And it was amicable, it sounds like, every time. He helped them found a career. He helped pay them. He helped feed them and clothe them. Like, he gave them a life. But he also was treating them as objects. And he had really strong ideals and he fought for them. But some of his ideals fucking sucked. And he did all this great philanthropy. But he did it so he could make money. So there is no brush to paint this guy with. Other than maybe he is the American dream. <laughs> well, it's not, oh, what, crap, what's his name? Thomas Dewey anymore? Yeah, I think this Failing guy, your way upwards, it's, it's Barnum? I think this guy beats Thomas Dewey. Okay. Or not Tom, what's his name? Do, Dooley. 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 Early, early episode. Yeah. Because um, he came from, you know, he had a middle class household when his father died and he had to like build his whole family back up. And he not, he built an empire he owned people, which we know that they love doing even now. He had several mansions, many of which burned down. And he got everything he wanted. And he had worked for it. Like, if nothing else, he worked hard. I usually like to end with a quote. I'm ending with a misquote. Barnum is often credited with, there's a sucker born every minute. But we've covered that wasn't we him. Have. It wasn't him. This was more likely said by someone we've covered before, Barnum's competitor, Charlie Hannum, who owned the Cardiff Giant. Barnum was actually a very, very against his customers being called suckers. He looked at them as, I think he called them humbugs, or, uh, which basically he was like, people like being tricked. It makes them feel good. Like, and we see that now with people going to magicians and going to horror movies. We like being made to feel something we know isn't real. Yeah. So it was actually kind of a respectful way that he viewed them. He did not like them being called suckers. Well, Charlie Hannum, there's a sucker born every minute, referring to the people who went to see P.T. Barnum's Cardiff Giant. And I, the idea for which he had stolen from Hannum. And that's P.T. Barnum. It's about damn time we got to oh him. Oh my God. Considering yeah. how often he comes up. Dude, it's like, if you're covering like ancient Greece and Rome, you're going to get plenty of the elder. And if you're covering anything that happened in America in the 1800s, you're going to get- Or later. Or later, you're going to get P.T. Barnum. So it's actually, it's really interesting. He's so controversial. Yeah. Um, because- when you look at things solely through a modern lens, he's the fucking devil. But when you look at things from the lens of the time, he was actually not the teetotal or anything, but the way that he was like, oh, these people need jobs and yes, I'm exploiting them, but I'm also paying them. And he paid them well. Yeah. Um, they were able to go start their own careers afterwards and he never stopped them. He never was like, please don't do that. He was like, okay, good luck. Kind of like, oh gosh, like that one guy said in my story and I'm looking for what it was, like the, the least aberrant choice yeah. Bardem is the least aberrant choice. Yes. Except for when it comes to Joyce Heth, in which case he is the devil and it doesn't matter yeah, what time was, period that was, is. That was fucked Especially up. if he ripped out her teeth. Even then, like, that's like a, up a level above that, but like the autopsy. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if you sign off on your body being used by like med students or like, yeah, go ahead and put me on display. Or if you agree to like have your body be on those like that bodies tour where it was like the skinned bodies. Oh, I wanted to go so bad. Oh, there's a lot of controversy about because there's I don't remember which one it is, but they think they've actually been using like the bodies of Chinese political prisoners for this. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy. And I know there are some where they're like wondering if people just donated to science, not really realizing that this was what science meant. Now me, I'd be like, cool. Like, I'm fine with that. Put me on display. I'm, I'm a fucking teacher. Like, I couldn't say fuck when I was a teacher. But like, at the end of the day, that is what I am. So if my corpse can be used to teach some kids at a museum, I'm all about it. But... But wait, no, you want to be fed to sharks. And I do. We are landlocked, so I figure I'm just going to have to dump you in an aquarium. We're going to weekend at Bernie's Me onto a cruise ship because people die on cruise ships all the time and nobody asks questions. That's true. I, but if that doesn't work out, though, I think I'm just going to dump you in an aquarium, in which you're going to teach some kids a very important lesson. Do you read about the lady who lives on a cruise ship? I wonder where she, I, wonder, I mean, she might be dead by now, but um, she lives on a cruise ship because it has medical staff and food. And it's cheaper than living in a retirement community. I would absolutely do that. That's brilliant. I mean, obviously, if I like my brain is going, don't put me on a cruise ship because that would be terrifying for me. Yes, we'll put you in a home. Yes. But like if you're just old and you need, you know that you have like pretty much you're capable, but you know you need medical assistance. That's brilliant because retirement communities are way too expensive. Mm-hmm. And so she has everything she needs on a cruise ship. And, and she su- gets and to meet all these people. And, and you're surrounded by old people. You're talking about little, and apparently, like everybody who is who works on the cruise ship is fine with her. Apparently, she's very nice, and you know, doesn't try to get in their way, and doesn't and isn't demanding. She's just a chill old lady who lives on a cruise ship. But damn, I wonder, like, if she's still alive, which she might not be, because it was a few years ago. Like, what is she doing right now? Because there are no cruise ships right now. Ooh, maybe she's like, maybe she's like the phantom of the cruise ship. She got her little half mask, and she's playing the uh, karaoke machine, and like, you know, stealing food. Are you ready for your questions? I'm ready for questions. Will the fact that Barnum's first attraction was an enslaved woman who he may have detoothed be on the test? No. (laughs) Will the fact that some of his so-called freaks were infants and children be on the test? Oh, no. Will the fact that he had a thriving political career be on the test? You know what? After 2016, yeah, they'll be on the test. What about the fact that he forced through the anti-contraception legislation? No, that won't be on the test. What about the fact that he termed, uh, coined the term profitable philanthropy? Yeah, I think that might. And will the fact that he saved the Brooklyn Bridge be on the test? Yes, because he did it with elephants. And on the test, will they still claim that he said there's a sucker born every minute? I hope not at this point, but I mean, there's so many misdistributed quotes. Yeah, we've talked about just doing an episode on those. Yeah, it's like literally just a game show where we're going to quiz each other on quotes to see if it's like, did this person say this? Yes or no? Oh, yeah. If we want to do that, I'm not going to say the one I was about to say then. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do that. So yeah, that's P.T. Barnum. He's come up many, many times. I'm sure he'll come up again, but now you kind of know who he is. Whew. And he sucked, and he also didn't suck. Yeah. It's like, man, we had this was this was the gray area episode. Yeah. We are as like firm The gray area episode that's really making our gray matter do its job. Yeah, it's like these it's like there's almost fifty shades of gray area in this. <laughs> and also fifty shades of morally gray. Ooh. Like they say on Crazy Ex Girlfriend. God, that that is a very underrated show. It is. It is. I mean, we didn't catch on to it until after it was... It wasn't off the air yet. But, but it, was it was close. Because we don't have cable. Maybe we should get cable. Maybe. We've talked about it on and off. We had it for a while. I liked having all the access to my ghost shows. Yeah, there was an entire channel that was nothing but ghost reenactments. I believe it was the History Channel or something that used to mean something. Uh, no, it was like American Experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, there are all these channels that used to be like... Like, a History Channel used to dig into history and Bravo was the arts. And now it's History Channel is Ancient Aliens and Bravo is like we're Real Housewives or some shit. Yeah. It's, mm. But I mean, you do what you got to do to get to make money, man. It's like, of course, you know, and we didn't even bring up MTV not being music videos anymore. Oh, my God. Although Cartoon I Cartoon Network's not cartoons anymore either. 
Is it not? They have they have a lot of live action shows on Cartoon Network. Well, probably not after 2020. Yeah. I loved MTV in middle school, like Carson Daly and his countdown and NSYNC was always on the top 10 because NSYNC kicks Backstreet Boys ass. And Austin finally admitted that. I don't know. I mean, does NSYNC have a werewolf that can only travel via backflips? (laughs) Yeah, we got into one of our mini ruts of just sitting and watching 90s music videos. But now he can actually tell the difference between NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. Yeah. And next, I gotta just turn you into 98 degrees so you can tell the difference there, too. No, I refuse. Or O-Town. Guys, I should make them listen to O-Town, shouldn't I? Okay, next podcast is just gonna be me talking about O-Town. So where can people find us? Well, they can find us at Twitter, at OnTheTestPod, on Facebook, at OnTheTestPod.com, on Instagram, at OnTheTestPod. Let me restart, because I fucked up. <laughs> we are on Instagram, at OnTheTestPod, on Twitter, at OnTheTestPod, on Facebook. You can just type in, will this be on the test? And you look for the little dude that's a statue doing a facepalm, or Facebook.com slash OnTheTestPod. We are on OnTheTestPod.com. I know our website sucks. I am working on it myself, and like it looks great on on desktop, but then it doesn't optimize for mobile the way it should. And our contact form, I'm not sure it works. But and just tweet at us. Yeah, tweet at us. Twitter is the best way to reach us, uh, followed by Facebook. And I don't know, I might need to switch to a different web service provider yeah. at this point. Maybe maybe a web service provider would like to sponsor us. Ooh. There are certain ones that seem to like to advertise on the podcasts, and that is not the one we are using. No. If only so, so Casper mattresses. If you <laughs> I could really use a mattress. We could. Like our mattresses. Straight up, you can buy us with mattresses. Yes. Mattresses, um, meal plans. You just send us some free meal plans, some wine. I mean, he doesn't drink, but I do. He's not a teetotaler. It's like, uh, I am just like P.T. Barnum. Yes. He runs around saying, don't drink and smacking things out of people's hands. Oh, you're more like Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation. Going with your axe. Just it, it was a hatchet, hatchet please. She was whatever. a lady. <laughs> Basically, like, anything that wants to sponsor us, you know. Okay, literally, I'll try to take a picture and post it later. We are talking into a freestanding microphone that is in a... Uh, Actually, a meal delivery kit box yeah. <laughs> um, with pieces of a beat up uh, egg carton mattress on it. So it's like we're using a food delivery service and a bad mattress to record <laughs> this podcast. Yes, we need your help. Please. If you want our sound quality to improve, sponsor us. I mean, I guess we could start a Patreon, but we've got like five listeners. We'll do so. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, with that $25 a month. We could probably eventually afford a, like headphones. Because yeah. we've tried to use headphones before and it did not work it out. It didn't work. Well, we, we it might have worked if we'd spent time messing with stuff. Yeah, we are not the kind of people who put effort into things knowing no. that we have Netflix downstairs. Yep. Although yep. we are eventually going to move us into a closet so it sounds really better. Yep. But that would also take effort and stapling things on walls and tearing down the false wall to find the dead bodies. Oh, yeah, we still need to do that. We also need to put in the new... Fl- okay, we're just talking about the things we yeah. need to do now. Okay, let's... Uh, let's like, oh, I forgot to mention one thing I did this week. I finally made the H.H. Uh, H. Holmes Alone poster. Yes, if you look on our social media, you can find H.H. H. Holmes Alone. And then maybe we can start a uh, GoFundMe to create this movie. We'll, we'll call Macaulay up, see if he's, see if he's busy. I, okay, I'm pretty sure Macaulay Culkin would love to do kind of a Home Alone, but he is H.H. H. Holmes, the horrific serial killer, as a dark comedy. Uh-huh. I can see him doing that. Actually, like, Home Alone is kind of a dark comedy. It is. Like, and the sequel's, like, even more so to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Home Alone 2. And then there's the other ones that we do not oh, speak God. of. The Home Alone 2 where, like, it's like the dystopian look at the future of a, you know, future president who does not care about kids separated from their parents. Yeah, seriously. 
Well, on, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.